I'm Angela Kennecke, a veteran journalist with 30 years in television news and an investigative reporter. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'm just a mom trying to find my way after the loss of a child in the opioid epidemic. I am grieving out loud, using my platform on TV and on social media to try to stop the stigma of addiction and get more people into treatment so that no other family has to go through the devastation that I and my family have experienced at the loss of our 21-year-old Emily. When I started speaking out about Emily's death about three months after she died, my main goal was really to stop the stigma and to try to save lives. Emily was number seven in 25 deaths that happened in my community of Sioux Falls, South Dakota in 2018. After that, the deaths seemed to level off. The overdoses seemed to level off in our community. And I spoke to our U.S. attorney who felt that the deaths weren't rising as quickly in 2019 as he expected because of all the awareness that I had been doing, and not just me, my entire television station. Everyone had gotten behind me on this, on trying to spread the word about the fentanyl in our community, the overdoses and addiction and what's being done about it. I wanted to take some credit for the fact that there were fewer deaths than expected in the beginning of 2019. However, when I spoke to the regional head of the DEA, I asked him, I said, do you think that our education and more awareness is cutting down on the number of overdoses and deaths in our area? And he said to me, I really wish that was the case. Unfortunately, whenever we see a cluster of deaths like this, there's usually a lull where there are fewer overdoses and fewer deaths, and then another bad batch of drugs laced with deadly fentanyl comes into the community and it happens all over again. Well, I'm sad to report that I believe that that's been happening in my community over the last month or so. Just a couple of weeks ago, I know of six people that had overdosed. Four of them lived. But on the day that we held Emily's art show and auction, a benefit to raise money to get more people into treatment, there was a funeral for a 24-year-old man in our community who died of fentanyl poisoning. But I'm also taking this very personally because two of Emily's friends the group that she hung out with and did drugs with, and people that she's known since she was in high school, two of them overdosed as well in the last couple of weeks. Now, both of them basically died, but were brought back by two doses of Narcan. So those kids are alive. One is a guy, he's 22 years old, and one is a girl, and she's 22 as well. And I had heard their names. Emily had mentioned their names quite a bit. The first one I'll just call Jake. I'd heard about Jake, and in fact, some of Emily's friends had left a birthday card, her niche where her ashes are held, and I saw that Jake had signed it. And the other friend I'll call Katie, and I'd heard Katie's name mentioned over and over and over again, and she also overdosed as well just this last week. And I think I start taking it really personally because I would hope that the friends of Emily's who know that she died would somehow have cleaned up their act, right? Gotten treatment, gotten better, and stayed away from this. But they haven't been able to, and it makes me so sad. And in both the cases of Jake and Katie, their parents contacted me immediately after they'd overdosed, just seeking my help and asking me what to do. And I don't know that I'm well equipped to tell them what to do. But I try my best in all the research and everything that I've discovered over the last year. I really try to help in any way I can. And in the case of Jake, 
He'd actually been put into jail after his overdose. He overdosed in his parents' driveway and was saved after paramedics arrived and administered Narcan. He was put into jail after he was treated in the emergency room because he had a misdemeanor marijuana charge. And so he was being held in jail. And I went down there. I just felt like Emily was telling me, please go tell Jake that I want him to live, that he's not supposed to die right now. It was just an overwhelming feeling I have. I cannot explain it. But I left work. I went down to the jail and I was on video conferencing with Jake. And I think he was really surprised to see me. And I told him that. I told him that I felt Emily wanted me to be there to let him know that it wasn't his time to die. He wasn't supposed to die like her. And then I told him, because his parents were so frantic and they're trying to get him into treatment and to get him help, and like most people who are suffering from addiction, in sets the denial, and they crave the drug after they have been administered Narcan more than they ever have, and the withdrawals are hell, and they're not giving them anything in jail to help them with the withdrawals, and that's another huge issue and problem that we have in our community. They were really worried that he was going to get out of jail and then not go to treatment. And I was worried about that too. And I said to Jake, I said, when someone is lending you a hand, a helping hand, you have to take it. You are here for a purpose and you are here for a reason and you are unique and you need to live to fulfill that reason and that purpose. And those were the things I said. And when I came out of that video conferencing room at the jail, his parents were waiting and they were so grateful to me for talking to him. But I told them, I don't know if this is going to make any difference. I don't know what it will be for Jake to get him into lasting treatment and recovery. But at least I did what I thought I could do. In the meantime, they were working on getting an involuntary commitment to make sure that he was admitted to treatment right away when he got out of jail. I have a friend who has two brothers. One died of an overdose, a drug overdose. The other one was a meth addict who committed suicide. And she told me, you can't even let them out for an hour because they will find it. They will make excuses that they need to go do something or get something. You have to drive them directly from the jail to the treatment center and get them in there. That is the first step, she said. And I told these parents that, and and that's what they were intending on doing. And they got the involuntary commitment. They worked through the court system. I am trying so hard to get involuntary commitments out of the court system, or at least in some way, make them less bureaucratic and easier for people to get, and to raise awareness and knowledge and the steps you need to go through to get that. Because really, no one is going to want to go into treatment voluntarily, or I shouldn't say no one. Very few people, very few people are going to want to go into treatment voluntarily, or they may say they're going to go and then they back out. So involuntary commitments are a necessary tool for families to use to keep their loved one alive. The idea that you can wait for rock bottom anymore, well, that is simply a myth. That is a complete myth. Rock bottom, as my friend who had two brothers die, says rock bottom is death or brain damage today. And we need to remember that. We have to help this person suffering from substance use disorder. And part of the symptom of the disease is use. And part of the symptom is denial and then wanting to go back to feeling better. They just want to feel better. So then this week, I got a frantic message from another mom, and that would be Katie's mom. And she had overdosed as well. And she had overdosed in a group setting using with other people. And fortunately, the other people had called for help because in our state, we do have Good Samaritan laws. And Good Samaritan laws mean that if someone calls for help, and let's say they've been using themselves or there is paraphernalia around, they will not be prosecuted for that because they called for help. And that happened in Katie's case. And she was in the emergency room and a 
There was no help in the emergency room. They just let them go. She had enough fentanyl in her system to kill 10 people. But her parents got her home, and she agreed to go to treatment. But then, a little while later, tried backing out and started saying she didn't need to go to treatment. And that is so typical. I said to her parents, you need to do whatever you can. And, and they did. And they drove her to treatment out of state in Minnesota and checked her in. But yet she was still threatening to leave 24 hours later. As of this moment, she hasn't left. But her parents are also trying to figure out how to get an involuntary commitment. And it becomes really tricky when you have someone in treatment across state lines because you can get an involuntary commitment in South Dakota, but you can't get an involuntary commitment to put them somewhere in Minnesota, which is where she is. So we're going to have to see how that story plays out. And she's currently, Katie is currently staying in treatment. And every day I pray that she will. So I'm so saddened to say that these overdoses continue, but it goes to show that we need to do more. We need to keep talking about it. I want our state to do better with involuntary commitments. If it isn't taking it out of the court system to at least streamline the process, make it more affordable, make it easier for people. But we have to take action and we have to keep pushing for this. I am so grateful that these two friends of Emily's are alive and get to live another day. I believe we can all learn from each other as we walk through life, and by sharing our suffering, we can lessen the suffering of others. To read my blogs and to join us in our mission, go to Emily's Hope at paintingapathtorecovery.org. And don't forget to rate and review this podcast. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.